<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 212 with my guest, Dean Tripp. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, uh, take surveys. Actually, if you would take the uh, favorite episode of 2014 survey, uh, I would greatly appreciate that. I want to be able to post those results soon, but I, I need a couple more people to respond to it. Um, you can take all different kinds of surveys. You can see how other people responded to surveys. Um, you can browse the forum. You can support the show. You can shop at Amazon through our search portal. They give us a couple of nickels, and that definitely helps support the show. Um, anyway, go to the website, mentalpod.com. Uh, just to give you a med update, my shrink increased my Abilify from 4 milligrams to 5 milligrams because it felt like it was starting to wear off. So I'm hopeful uh, it's gonna it's gonna help. But uh, overall, I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I'd say I'm feeling about 80, uh, 80 to eighty five percent. Which, given my history of sometimes being in the low thirties uh, or the teens, is a very nice, very nice feeling. Uh, Want to read a couple of struggle in a sentence surveys. This one. Um, was filled out by Rachel, and she writes about her depression. It feels like my soul is sinking down through my body and into the curve of my tailbone, ready to fall out. It's so descriptive. Uh, snapshot from her life. Depression and loneliness make me so tired. Sometimes I just want to stop by the sidewalk and lie down in the snow and become invisible so I can rest without people thinking I'm dying. That one hit me like a ton of bricks when I read that. I was like, oh my God, you perfectly described it perfectly any suggestions to make the podcast better write and sing a song about your dogs i just i might take you up on that i don't know if if i would have the balls to uh to share it probably just play it for my wife but sip a tea hold on 
This is, that probably just pissed off people who have misophonia. Um, this was filled out by a guy who call a teenager who calls himself Maximilian. And about um, his depression, he writes, Every day out in public, I put on a fake smile and face the same daily routine as I'm slowly dying on the inside. Now, buddy, I wish you understood how many people feel that exact same way. I would say that roughly 70% of the episodes of Dinner in a Movie that I did, I was pretending to be happier than I was sometimes drastically, but um, it had nothing to do with the people I worked with. I worked with lovely people, but when my depression was bad, man, it felt like my face was having to bench press 500 pounds. Smiling was so hard. There were so many times that the director would say, cut, cut, Paul, Paul, your face. Don't look so sad. A little more energy, more energy. It's, it was, uh, I was very lucky to have that job, but there were some days when I was just like, um, it, it, I felt so phony um, so many days. This is Struggle in a Sentence, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Jonas Kazal. I might be pronouncing that wrong. I'd say there's a good chance I am pronouncing that wrong. About his depression, I got out of bed. What else do you want from me? About his sex addiction, I try to put out the fire with jizz, but the flames get higher. You might be drinking too much hard alcohol. Uh, about his PTSD, if I cut her out of my life again, she's going to come kill me. He's talking about his mom. About living with an abuser, he, he writes, it rests completely on my shoulders to keep my parents together. About his anger issues, this fight is over when you apologize or one of us is dead. And then a snapshot from his life, he writes, the night before my wedding, my mom blew up at my brother, put me in the middle of it, then got mad when I told her she needed to sort it out. She told me she wasn't coming to the wedding and hung up on me. When I called to apologize an hour later, she told me it really hurt when I told her she wasn't allowed to come to the wedding. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Dean Tripp, who had been suggested uh, by a listener. Uh, you had appeared on the uh, Fat Man and Batman. Is that what Kevin Smith's podcast is called? Yeah, Fat Man on Batman. Fat Man on Batman. I'm going to have you just move into the mic a little bit, okay. a little bit more. Um, and they said you have to have Dean. Uh, as a as a guest, and uh, my listeners rarely steer me wrong, so uh, I tweeted to you. I said, mm -hmm. "You ever get to L.A.?" And you said, "Actually, I'm coming for Comic Con." That's right, because you were a graphic uh, illustrator. Mm -hmm. And um, how would you define what what it is 
that that you do because I'm I'm not very into graphic novels and I know that you're a somebody who's known in the in that world and I've seen some uh excerpts of what you do and it's beautiful well, and it you. goes pretty deep uh what you talk about too um but how would you describe to the listener what it is that 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 you do I make comic books uh I mostly tell stories with superheroes I'm a big fan of the whole idea of superheroes and so that's usually kind of what I'm known for especially big happy smiling bright colorful superheroes and you launched uh a project where you now like a thousand different artists have gotten on board where you guys redraw classic superheroes yeah project rooftop uh that is a really fun site i've been working on for about eight years uh me and some buddies uh chris errant who's a comic book writer and journalist and uh vito del sante who's a comic book writer and a bunch of other pals and we started bringing well it's like there's a specific set of skills required to redesign a superhero costume because you've got to maintain their identity visually but you want to go into a new place and every now and then that happens in the comic books but sometimes it's more successful than others and so i kind of wanted to just highlight that specific skill and so it's a really fun site with a lot of really good art and what's happened is some of our main contributors have gone on to become major dc and marvel artists so it's been really cool Wow, that's cool. And what was the name of the meme that you guys kind of launched that went viral? The first thing we did was Draw Batgirl. And that was a, a just a dare. Uh, me and my buddy Jamie D. Gailey, who's uh, he's a local out here, um, and I was living in Nashville at the time, had seen Andy Watson, this other comic book artist, had posted a failed Batgirl pitch. <laughs> and her costume was so cute and so cool. And we just sit there. Every time that you hear about like a failed pitch at DC. Oh, just, it wasn't intended to be bad. It just failed. Yeah, just they didn't oh, pick it up. I was I was picturing, you know, that she's wearing a burlap sack. and <laughs> No, she had a really stylish, like slick outfit. And um, it didn't look like any previous Batgirl, really. It just looked really classic and cool and uh, like streamlined. And uh, so we dared each other to post our own one in 30 minutes. It's like, you got 30 minutes, go, because we were just talking about what we would do differently. And then the next day, eight of our friends posted theirs. And the day after that, there were 50, including a couple of famous people like Brian Lee O'Malley, you know, from Scott Pilgrim. And uh, inside of a week, we had a thousand. And that got us our first interview on major comic sites. And... The interviewer was Chris Arendt, and then me and him got to talking, and we were just like, let's just do a whole site that's just this. Just redesigning classic superheroes. Yeah. Now, do you get into legal problems doing that? No, it's just a fan art site. Oh, okay. We don't make any... There's literally no money at the site. It costs me money. But you're supporting yourself being a comic uh, book illustrator. Yeah, I am now. uh, This year with uh, Something Terrible, the auto-bio story I did, I've been able to move to not having a day job but for the last 10 years of doing this professionally it's also meant having some sort of day job most of that time is it fair to say that something terrible is uh, the purest expression of what's inside you um i guess it's it's kind of like my own secret origin story and i i needed to do it 
because there's a message involved. And it's for adults. It's not a. It's not right. a, meant to be a children's graphic right. novel. I, although I've heard from some therapists who are using them with their using it with their younger patients, mm-hmm. but um, your, I did your specific comic mm-hmm. or other comics. Your My comic. story. Wow. Yeah. Um, I've actually made a lot of friends in the uh, psychiatric and psychological field, like, including the president of the American Psychiatric Society. <laughs> so, wow. Who's a really nice guy. Um, fucking nuts, but he's a comic book fan in New York. You know? I don't even know who he is. <laughs> His name's Paul. He's really cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, my story kind of explains why I do this and why I'm so involved with it. And the, it's, it took me a year to do it. But while I was working on it, it really dawned on me that no one who doesn't know the story understands me at all because it's the foundation of everything mm-hmm. that I do well let's talk about your story uh where were you raised how old are you i'm 33 okay and where were you raised well i was born in tucker georgia and uh it's kind of outside atlanta and until i was around nine or ten i lived in that general vicinity and uh later i moved to like farmland so i grew up on a farm after that after my mom remarried but uh growing up in georgia with uh single mom and living at our grandparents' house, and I have a sister who's three years younger than me. And, and what was family life like? What are, what are some snapshots from, from um, well, that the, family life? The earliest stuff was is fairly turbulent, what with my uh, mom having to get, or not having to, but choosing to get married when she got pregnant with me uh, right out of high school, and she had a lot of her friends shun her. And she had to go to night school and um, married my dad. And then he was cheating on her and left when the house was being foreclosed on. And she didn't even know that. So we had to move in with um, her parents. And uh, from then on, uh, other than the events of the story, about two years after moving in there, it's been pretty great. Because my grandparents are lovely, and my grandfather was in the Navy, and he's a mechanic, and he built a plane in his garage, and we flew it. So, Get the fuck out of yeah, here. Yeah, it was, it was an RV4, this little two-seater kit plane. He built planes for the Navy, and so he built one at home. So he was a pilot, clearly, before mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Because I can't imagine what it's like flying a plane that you built for the first time how exciting and terrifying <laughs> that has to be as a child did you understand that this was more dangerous than buying than flying a plane for the first time that came off the factory line i think so he built that during the time that i was growing up so from like age six to age like 13 so i'd been up in planes since i was like two years old which seems ridiculously dangerous and dumb. I have a son now and I don't put him in little dinky planes, but I grew up in them. So by the time that it was time to fly, he named it after my uh, sister, Jennifer. So it was the Jennifer. When we flew that, I felt really secure in it because I knew that he built it. Wow. That says something about your grandfather that you, (laughs) that you had that much. Yeah. His name's uh, Mac Blankenship and we call him Pawpaw. He's fantastic. And then, Nana, my grandmother, uh, was uh, she would do seamstress work for people and was a great cook. And uh, I grew up with a lot of homemade clothes and uh, homemade toys for Christmas and stuff like that. And she helped make a lot of that. 
It's so touching when you hear stories, uh, and it's so often it seems as if the most touching stories are between the grandparents and the kids, and I suppose because they don't have that burden of responsibility, the day-to-day responsibility that the parent has that, that can sometimes, I guess, leave them frazzled. But some of the most beautiful stories I've heard and the deepest connections I've heard have been between uh, kids and grandparents. I think it's because they have more time often, and then also... Uh they're not as afraid as a first time parent. There's just so much fear. Uh, my son's with, uh, his mom's parents one time. And, uh, I saw him pulling at the cables behind the TV and she, his grandmother's just sitting there watching him. Like, you know, my kids survived. Let's see if yours will that kind of notion, right. you know, yeah. and I, I don't understand that at all. So, it was a fairly stable relationship after your dad left. Uh, right. Obviously, there was probably some pain, I would imagine, that your dad, or were you too young to really remember him leaving? I wasn't. I, I You know, uh, my earliest memory is just before I turned two. I think I have a longer memory than most people. And so I remember very vividly, um, in something terrible, it starts off with a panel of me at six years old sitting outside my house, or five or six, and it's the day that my dad didn't show up for his weekend visit for the first time. Um, because the story deals with uh, sexual abuse later, a lot of people who have read the comic think that it's an ongoing thing, and I'm showing the sadness of that and the brokenness of that in those first two panels. But actually, it's this inciting incident. The, the events that happened to me involved us being babysat by some church families, uh, these, this deacon at his church and his family, and then the eldest son uh, molested me and my sister. But that wouldn't have happened if my father had been there that weekend like he was supposed to be. My wow. mom accepted this offer for babysitting after saying no multiple times, and then because she wanted a weekend off for a change. Mm. So uh, I don't really... It would, I guess it would be a lie to say I don't blame my biological father. But it's not like he knew... That would happen. Right. But from a early age, from like six or seven, following the events of this, I've had it drilled into me that you don't leave your kids because you don't know what's going to happen. You have to be there to protect them. And so I spent... Basically, my entire life wanting to be a dad and break the chain of abandonment because my father's father left him when he was five, too. And my son just had his sixth birthday. Wow, but that brought some shit up, huh? It was, it's, it's basically the most glorious feeling for me is crossing this finish line that I set for myself when I was like in elementary school. Talk about that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I don't. <laughs> There, so I'm not a, I'm my not mom, a parent, so my mom remarried, and I have this uh, awesome adoptive stepdad who taught me a lot about what fatherhood is, and mostly it's goofing around and being pretty cool. How old were you when he came into your life? Um, uh, six. Oh, um, my so mom there wasn't started much of a gap. dating. She'd been divorced for a little over a year, but she started dating uh, my dad, Charlton Tripp, and um, they got married when I was eight. 
So I had a, you know, like not every week or anything, but seeing him for a good while there. And he was actually in our lives uh, at the time that this sexual abuse occurred. You're talking about your biological dad or your stepdad? My stepdad was. Okay. And uh, I didn't know that until recently when I was working on the story. I found out so many more things from talking to my mom for the first time ever about all this. For, and it brought up a lot of new information for both of us, what the other side's perspective was on this criminal act that affected our lives for so long, you know. Um, but when my mom remarried, my mom said I got to choose whether my name would be Trip or what my biological father's name was, which is what my name had been. And the thing that was it's funny to remember, I know where I was sitting in my bedroom on these bunk beds. And I, you're not supposed to write on the wall. And I wrote my name with my old last name and my name with my new last name. And I thought, the thing that's difficult about it is that I'm the last male on either side. If I get adopted into this family, I'm the last trip. And if I'm not, I'm the last of the other. And I went with the person who showed up. And I set myself this goal because my mom told me about that time about how uh, my biological father's dad had left him when he was five, too. And I just I couldn't get my head around that because I knew how this felt. And I couldn't imagine how you could do that to your son. And I thought that since I was a kid and as a father now. Like the idea that I could leave that guy like the coolest dude I know who's made of me and like he's better than me in every way because he's had the benefit of me being with him and he's so smart and so funny and so cool and he's uh likes all the same things i do and the idea that you could leave your kid it seems so crazy to me do you think your grandparents your mom's parents helped you to break that chain because there was love and stability there Well, that's the thing that my mom brought up when I was talking to her about working on something terrible, because I got divorced a couple of years ago, and I'd been in this really depressing, not violent or... Was this with the mother of your child? Yes, uh, my son's mom, um, who's a really good person. We are just radically different, and it bums us both out to extreme levels. Like, we both were suicidal. Like, once we were talking about it during the divorce, it was just like... I've been feeling this. Well, I've been feeling this too. And it was a real revelation because we each thought the other one was happy at the times that we were at the worst points, but neither of us were happy at any point of it. (laughs) Um, But she was the first person I had opened up to about being sexually abused. And because that's such a huge secret for so many people, uh, I, I meet so many people now who come up to me and tell me their stories or email me and tell me their stories. But... A lot of times, people are so shy to talk about it that they'll just say, I wish I was that brave. That's the code. And that's for the ones that know that it happened. Yeah. Because so many don't, they just have a fuzzy memory, Mm -hmm. or they can't give weight to it and won't call it that. Yeah. And and will blame themselves. So when your dad left, he divorced your mom. Mm-hmm. I think my mom had to file for divorce with him being okay. gone. It was difficult, but yeah. But then he didn't, after he didn't come that weekend, did, did he? He used to do like the week weekend visits, the typical like sitcom ex, well, I guess most sitcoms don't have dads like that, but you hear about it in stories. 
And so much of what, this is the other thing, is one of the reasons why I work in fiction is because so much of what we know comes from fiction. You think you learned this thing in some life experience or in school or something, but really you picked it up in a Bugs Bunny cartoon or a Batman episode. There's all this stuff that you think you know for sure that's just from a story, man. Myth is myth is so powerful. It is. You know, negative and positive. Yes, yeah, I completely agree, which is one of the reasons why I did this story, but we'll get to that in a minute. But um yeah, uh, he didn't, we used to do the, you know, go to Whitewater or Six Flags or Stone Mountain's a big thing in Georgia, which when I was a kid growing up in Georgia, uh, I was a big uh, Martin Luther King fan. I grew up in a very multicultural area. Like the kid who showed me how to draw Ninja Turtles for the first time was... Uh, showed you how to draw what? Ninja Turtles. Oh, okay. Um, that's how I got started drawing in third grade was my black friend Cedric uh, was like, here's how you draw Ninja Turtles. But so we grew up in this multicultural area. Um, I went to this, this school called Midvale Elementary and there were like, I had Romanian friends and my best friend was Jewish and there were a lot of black kids and a lot of Hispanic kids There were Eastern European. It was just, it was a really good mix. And so everything looked like Captain Planet and 60s Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And so now when I'm in environments that don't look like that, I get real wigged out. <laughs> like, <laughs> If like you go into a restaurant and it's all white people and you're like, why doesn't anybody else come here? What's wrong with this place? <laughs> but uh, growing up in that environment, uh, I was a big MLK fan from learning about him in school. And in the I Have a Dream speech, he shouts out uh, Stone Mountain. So you think, oh, that's awesome. I go there all the time. Uh -huh. And he's calling it out because it's where the Klan formed, which is I didn't learn <laughs> until like high school. <laughs> <laughs> Such a bummer. <laughs> but isn't it awesome that your experience not that far away from Stone Mountain was so multicultural? And Yeah. Well, that's the thing I also really like about the South. I think um, we get a bad rep. And I, I think I have a lot of German friends, and I, I think they have kind of the same perspective on it that places that have been through horror of racism and, and uh, thinking that other people are less than you, uh, after that's over you have to rebuild and there's certainly plenty of racist dick bags in Georgia but it's also like really multicultural and awesome a lot of immigrants from all sorts of places come to Georgia and uh Tennessee and they're run by these horrible racist governments but there's a lot of people <laughs> there on you know the normal uh, society so when you decided we'll get back to your story as a child but i just wanted to pick up on this thread when you decided to split with your wife, was there a fear inside of you that, oh, I'm, even though you knew Huge you were still, you, you were still going to yes. visit your kid, did on a certain level you feel like, oh, I've done it, now I've abandoned my kid? Because certainly he felt pain and he must have been afraid. Well, uh, my son actually lives with me and he's with his mom on the weekends. Oh, okay. uh, we, she has almost half the time. Um, but yeah, it was, that's what kept me from getting divorced. From, from like year one. And I was, we were, you know, together, we were married for five years and together for a total of 11. And the fact that she was the one person who knew my secret, my big, I'm terrible with secrets. I don't like keeping secrets. I'm, I'm a very open person. And it's because I had this one giant thing. So her being on the inside of this and still accepting me was enough and then the idea of getting divorced and following the path of my father, which I knew his father had started, it's, it's I had spent my whole life trying to build myself into being the best dad. And then 
even though we were on the verge of divorce and then we get pregnant and then I'm so psyched and she's all worried because we both could have separated and now it's like, well, we can't now. We've got to stay and do this together. We need each other for this. And then multiple times in the first few years of being parents, it was still just oh, so hard, so very, very hard. And I think my experience taught me that you have to hold out for the head over heels, crazy, constantly infatuation, awesome match. Because growing up, uh, I grew up in a, a church environment and there was so much just make it work kind of thinking that, and, and they, I think a lot of people give bad relationship advice. I think maybe in like five or six years, I might be able to do an autobiography story about divorce, but uh, I need some distance from it. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like people give so much advice that's just like, oh, everybody fights. Everybody doesn't get along. Every story in romantic comedies is about how men and women are different. And I have far more feminine qualities, I think, than the average dude. And uh, my girlfriend now has a handful of more masculine qualities, and we make it work really nicely. Whereas my last relationship, we were just totally different thinkers on every Mm. aspect of how you approach a problem. And it led us to fighting amongst ourselves rather than tackling problems together. Um, But yeah, following down the divorce path was terrifying to me. Because even if it, you know, like it worked out great, it still means my son's not with me part of the week. And it's a wound to him because he gets to see the nuclear, he sees the nuclear family disrupted and that's, I would imagine a child's primary safety blanket is that sense of togetherness and when that gets disrupted, I would imagine that it's, no matter how much nurturing there is, it's still going to affect a child's worldview, if not permanently, certainly temporarily. I think it's a little bit easier when they're younger, like my son was. Um, But I agree. And I think he was a little better insulated because I I, I was a teacher. I taught um, youth groups, nature camps, daycares, taught middle school, every up to and especially with the church like a lot of bible study stuff uh back when i was more involved with the church and uh so i've taught ages 2 to 20 professionally now i'm just doing it with one guy so when a subject comes up like a friend's getting parents are getting divorced or something like that i've I've always talked to him about it because i don't want him to be blindsided i think a lot of people want to insulate their kids from the bad things and i think there's timing you know, like I didn't sure. tell, I didn't tell my son about racism, and I haven't used that word, but just the idea that it used to be that people who had different color skin couldn't vote. How insane is that? And he's just like that blows his mind, you know. But I didn't bring that up until he was five. Mm-hmm. But I try to approach things in a way that he can understand, so that he's not blindsided. And we had mm-hmm. talked about divorce. So it's still not he actually asked me about it this week and I still think it's hard for him to get his head around because he loves us both so much and we both are genuinely you know driven people who are only about doing what's best for him 
even when we disagree on what that is, we come to a consensus eventually. Um, we keep that away from him. But yeah, it's it's not easy because he knows that we can't be in the same house. And, and you know, that's the thing I would imagine is so difficult for people that are incompatible together is it's certainly no healthier for the family to stick together no. if the parents can't hide that toxicity and that that lack of vitality you know kids can sense a deadness emotional deadness between people and um that's that's not healthy either so i i'm i guess what i'm saying is i i i, I think this was i don't know what the answer for, is when yeah well i th i think you need to be realistic and if you make a mistake you got to have the chance to choose better you know, I um, just do it in a way that's as loving and as considerate to everyone involved as possible. Yes. Uh, was there another point you wanted to make before we go back? I don't remember. But okay. oh, there was a thing we were saying a moment ago, which was that a thing my mom brought up when you asked me about whether my grandparents were helpful uh, in being in a loving environment. When I I've I feel like I've faced all the temptations that my father faced where um, whether it's easily abandoning relationships or uh, like before I was married and um, criminal activity, like a shoplifter in middle school, like really bad <laughs> and uh, smoking or drinking, things like that. But I've had a foundation of just love and acceptance and support that he didn't. He really didn't. His family is just not like that. And so, like, when I got divorced and, you know, when you have to move out of your house, you, both of us moved out of the house we were living in, and you have to rebuild a whole house from very little, from ha less than half of what you had, uh, it's really difficult. And I had the benefit of my parents like being like, well, I need to get you a bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And setting me off on that. I, I've had one of the things about getting divorced is that you find out you think you're going into this shunned club of like a few people who've been divorced. And it's really scary. And, and there is a little bit of that where your married friends are a little weirded out by you now because you've got divorce on you. But um, you actually find so much more connection with other people who have been divorced or found uh, remarried or uh, are enjoying dating or something like that just because if you're in a bad relationship, it feels so good to be out of it. And then you can bond with, with people who have been through that experience. So let's go back to childhood. You kept this secret. It was, it was uh, uh, the boy of a couple yeah. in the church. Yeah. And how old was he? Uh, I think he was uh, 14. Okay. And you were five, six? I was six. And you never told anybody about it until you opened up to your wife? No. Well, I didn't. I mean, uh, my mom figured it out. And so he was prosecuted, which was excellent. A lot of people don't get that. Um, I didn't know the details of it until uh, recently. But I did know that there were the police involved because I remember going to talk to the police, had to go to the psychologists. Um, my sister was abused by the same uh, individual, and so we both were there. She was much younger. This whole time, my parents had hoped that she'd forgotten entirely and that I was 
fine or recovering. She was very young. She would have been three. She was three, yeah. But she did remember some of it. When I told her I was working, I had to tell her I was working on the story, which meant approaching it very gingerly to be like, so I'm working on this thing, and it it's about something that happened to me when I was a kid, and I don't know how it's going to affect you. And she said, is it about the room where there were these bunk beds and these things? And she described the room to me. And my heart just sank because I knew that she remembered. It made it easier because I didn't have to unload it all on you. But I was able to give her details and clarify things for her because she's been living with this secret and understanding even less than I did. And she's never talked to anybody about it? Well, she uh, had to... uh, Testify. Her longtime uh, boyfriend. And uh, so uh, that was kind of the person that she had talked to about it i see and uh they're really awesome i really like but she hadn't remembered from uh she hadn't remembered any of the court no. stuff or any of that she was no. too young to remember they that. did uh video interviews so that the court could see them and we didn't know that people could see us yeah i can't imagine how traumatizing that would be for the kids that have to testify in court i'll tell you the thing that's difficult about it when you're in that situation and this is me talking as six-year-old me, you know, remembering what this was like, is when someone betrays you like that, it's because they've earned your trust and they shouldn't have been able to do that. And you don't want it to turn you into somebody who isn't trusting, you know, who doesn't extend that to people. But um, I remember talking to the police and describing in detail these, you know, really just horrible things but i didn't know how horrible they were they just wigged me out a little bit you know what i mean like i didn't feel right about it but i didn't know and kids have the a gravity way. of people it. have a way of detaching in the moment to right. protect themselves but at the same time i remember saying like well he, you know he also let me ride his skateboard so i don't think he's all bad that kind of thing uh, defending him it's, it's just because you you, you can, don't know the, better the, and the kid doesn't realize that that was a part of him grooming you that he does that i know exactly so that you don't well and that's the thing see him as a monster because of my mom figuring this out and putting it together and getting him prosecuted he had uh five other victims who were ages two to six two and i'm not talking about just touching them like this horrible stuff and uh, i'm really proud of my mom for not sweeping this under the rug or pretending it didn't happen which of course you and I sitting here today, if we heard about something like this happening to a kid, we'd run out to try and do whatever we could to stop it. But I hear from people whose moms or dads didn't believe them. It's so awful. And I just... its I think it's a worse injury than the, that I do than too. the thing itself. I didn't have to go through that because I had my mom. Um, I had been uh, conditioned uh, by my attacker with... Uh, he had access to his father's handgun. And he showed it to me after some things had happened. And I was wigged out by them, but I wasn't, like, traumatized until he shows me this gun. And he says, if you ever tell anybody about this, I'm going to kill your family. And so I used to have nightmares about waking up and seeing the bodies of my sister and my grandparents and my mom, like, outside my bedroom, all during elementary school. And it didn't go away until, like, we moved away. Because I didn't know all the details of him going to juvenile detention or whatever. It felt like he was still a potential threat. 
you know, when you mentioned his age, that, that he was 14, mm-hmm. you know, my first thought was, oh my God, he was a kid. I know, right? And then as you describe what he did with the gun mm-hmm. afterwards, it, it's so, I'm so torn because it, it I want to have compassion I know. for that 14 year old kid that was clearly abused himself you you say that but um most offenders weren't abused i have a really hard time believing that i know most people do you know why it's because it's in every story but they've done three long-term studies that was the idea was popularized in the 90s and it wasn't until they actually did studies on it they just did a 30-year study in australia they've done multiple ones in europe here in the united Mm -hmm. states not only do most victims not become offenders, most offenders weren't victims. No, that I have a, a, a hard... I believe that most victims don't become offenders. Right. But I have a really hard time okay, believing so, that, that most offenders weren't victimized. I know. Children. That's I, why I wrote this story is because of... Uh, I got to... So, okay. So this is what happens to me. And then I'm 12 years old or so, and I'm, I'm getting into comics and Batman's the story of this kid who's traumatized and rebuilds himself into somebody who helps others, who can be the thing that he needed for others. It's not about fixing what happens to him. It's not about vengeance. It's about being a protector for the innocent, for people who need someone who has trained their whole lives to be awesome. And, um, then I get in because of Batman stuff. I'm into all these crime shows. I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch cop shows it's like Commissioner Gordon. So I'm watching Law and Order and Homicide. And I'm particularly drawn to stories where they deal with child abuse because no one talks about it. If, imagine you're this victim and the thing that is so horrible and happened to you and then it's never talked about. So you feel so isolated. And when it is on Law and Order and stuff like this. They would uh, bring up that someone did this to you. Victims become offenders. And so I made a pact with myself when I was like 11 or 12 that if I ever had sexual thoughts about children, I'd kill myself. And my father has guns. I have not easy access to them, but I'm not a dummy. I could get them if I wanted them. So I had a gun pointed to my head my whole life. And you couple that with the... I need to build myself into the best father. So I'm somebody who, whenever I, when I was a kid, like my preschool teacher's sons who were like teenagers at the time, like gave me their Legos and like were always really cool to me and encouraged my drawing. And so I knew the value of being that older brother figure, especially as I didn't have one and I was one. So I had those and I had, I was the older brother to my sister. And then my mom and uh, my stepdad uh, who adopted me uh, had another daughter when I was 12, Melody, and it really brought out that big brotherliness when you have a baby in your arms when you're 12, and uh, it made me a better brother to my first sister, who did normal sibling fighting all the time up until that point, but I had to work with kids. Like I was in the after-school program. I was one of the older kids, so I was always like encouraging the younger kids and drawing with them, showing them tricks and building Legos, and then I was working at the daycares and stuff but in order to do that i had to have the gun to my head so i needed to be the protector of kids and guiding them into being cool people and i needed to trust myself with this serious 
self-imposed one-person suicide pact so that I could protect them. Because of this misconception that is so widespread. Um, so then I get heavy into comics. And I get heavy into Batman and Doctor Who and the idea of the multiverse. My favorite writer is this guy, Grant Morrison, who always writes about the multiverse. And um, how Batman's fictional, sure, but all that means is if there are parallel realities and they're infinite, that's one of the universes. So, And then here's the other thing. I read a lot of comic books, and sometimes they have to cross universes, man. So what happens if I write a story where Batman comes to our universe? And then it just <laughs> trips me out so bad. <laughs> and then I think, well, what would happen if I did a story where Batman came to my universe when I needed him most and saved me? And I was scared to draw it because I th thought I might unravel my own personal history. <laughs> And so, because I have my son, the idea of uh, deleting my history was very terrifying to me. And I know this all sounds super silly, but when you no, read a lot of Grant Morrison comics, you start to think that imaginary worlds are real. And I got really worried that that might happen, so I, I was scared to draw it. What do you mean when you were afraid that your story <laughs> would be unraveled? Well, okay, so what I'm saying is... Physicists believe that we live in a multiverse, right? Mm -hmm. I keep hitting all the equipment in here. It's okay. Um, and if the multiverse is infinite, if every possibility is explored, then every idea you've ever had, if it's infinite, infinite forever... Exists somewhere. Exists somewhere. Every silly universe idea that you could possibly have is real. There's a, there's a world out there where there's... Where I am president. I was going to say you were Superman, but, you know, you can be president. You can be, there's actually, uh, in the DC Comics multiverse, there's a president Superman uh, multiverse. So, um, and since you know that that, if you, if you accept that, and then you say, well, what happens if I write a little fictional story where Batman comes to our universe? I was afraid I could literally change reality. Which I think sounds really out there, but again, I'm a big fan of those comic books and, and they, they helped me so much. And then getting into that mindset, I was like, I don't think that would happen, but I'm not going to mess with my life. You know, before we go further in that arc of the, the you writing about the, the Batman thing, I just want to pick up on a, on a previous thing. You, you know, you talked about having the, the, you know, the, the gun to your head in the event that you ever began yeah. to have sexual thoughts about children. You know, my feeling with that is there are lots of people who have sexual thoughts about children, but they have a very clear line in their mind that that is not anything that they will act on, that that is something that was just, it's beyond their control in terms of that. We have no control over what turns us on. I read a piece a uh, few months ago from someone who's... Uh, who considers himself a pedophile. He's never acted on it. And he started a support, an anonymous based support group for other people who have sexual thoughts. Is about this children. the guy that was on this American life? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's really valuable work. Um, I, it's, and they clearly tell people you can't be in the support group if you intend to, or have, um, hurt children. This right. has to be for people who, only want to continue. Who understand this. the gravity of yeah. how bad of a we crime a, that is? We had someone write a guest blog for our 
for our podcast uh, who express the same thing. I, I think that's really valid, and uh, it's really hard for me to um, spend too much time down the hypotheticals of, of all of everything that's involved with that. I had a very simple... Because when media is telling you that offenders were victims, you feel like you've been bitten by a werewolf, and it just could come out of you. There's a monster inside you. So I had to have a very clear, uh, if, if any level of thought went towards that, I would just remind myself of the image of the gun to my head and be like, I'll fucking put you down, dude. And then immediately stop. So there, there would never got to the point of anything. I, well, what would you, what would you do? Go ahead and finish your thought. I just, I can't. Uh, now that I'm have done this story, um, which in the story I find out that there have been all these studies that show that most of the the easy part to accept that I had come to a conclusion on just based on anecdotal evidence and and knowing a few statistics in um, high school, I was in a civics class and we had to read Newsweek every week and there was something that showed the stats on child sexual abuse and it was saying it's like one in I think at the time it said one in six. I think now it's in terms of unwanted, unwanted sexual activities. It's one in three for girls and one in five for boys are the high statistics. The based on whatever statisticians base things on. But um, I had heard one in six, and then I just sat there in my classroom, knowing I'm one. And there's you know twenty something kids in here. That means I'm not the only one. And it was just this, it's horrifying to know that there are so many. And then it's a relief to know that we're not alone, even though we're so rarely represented. And when we are, we're represented so negatively. So the easy part to accept is that uh, victims don't all become offenders. But I still had the pact with myself. It was just kind of anecdotal. And then I get over my fear of drawing the story. And I draw a little sketch of that bedroom. And Batman shows up with Doctor Who and Superman in the TARDIS and blocks the door and takes me into the TARDIS and there's all these superheroes. And he into says, the what? The TARDIS, it's Doctor Who's time traveling machine. Oh, okay. It's this blue box. Um, it's an old style British phone booth. Okay. And inside it's this like giant spaceship. But um, those, I think Batman, Superman, and Doctor Who are my favorite superheroes. He's just called the Doctor for every fan who's screaming in their earbuds right now. <laughs> um, and I didn't rewrite time. Everything was fine. I just did the little sketch. I was at a really low point, and I drew the thing. I think This American Life had just run an episode about another child abuse victim, and I listened to the whole... I was going to Starbucks to do some work, and I just uh, sat outside the whole time and listened to it. And I like everything stopped, like time stopped. And I listened to this guy's episode and you can look it up. It's a really good episode. Um, I think if you just put in child sexual abuse in this American life, you'll get it. But um, he described having the same pact with himself and hearing that victims become offenders. And I had related so hard to, again, you never hear stories like this. So I went home and I drew my little sketch little sketch comic pencil and that night because i'm all geared up from listening to that episode and drawing my little comic 
I go to read the Wikipedia entry on child sexual abuse, and I've never read it before. And you get down to causal factors, and it says, while it was previously believed to be a high uh, causal factor for uh, victims to become offenders, studies now show that not only do most victims not become offenders, but most offenders don't even say they were victims. And they have every reason to lie about it. And it was like, the first half of that I had pretty sure about and the second half was being set free and it's like I could put the gun down and I had been afraid to be around my son at bath time and diaper changes and I've heard this now from a lot of fathers that have been through the same thing a lot of people and a lot of women they would would go to change a diaper and they would freeze uh, and they would just you know start hyperventilating like you know yeah and I didn't, you know, you bring up uh, mothers. I didn't expect that as much from women because my experience was this was, you know, this male abusers, and you see that more in the fiction. But um, I've heard from so many people who were abused by women, or even if they were abused by men, they're still afraid that it's in them and that they're going to hurt their kids, and are you know they had to deal with these same fears, and fortunately getting the word out about these studies, which is included in my story has let them put their gun down. I've heard from people in their fifties and sixties who have grown children who like are just now finding out they could put the gun down. And I'm really proud of having done a thing that helped this specific issue for people like me. I feel like I did the Batman thing I could do with what happened to me. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really awesome, and I just want to say to anybody out there who has a fantasy that is dark, you know, if there's something that turns you on, you know, there's a lot of people that have fantasies about raping or being raped, or and we talk about it a ton on this podcast, and I, and I don't, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I have to say it because the torture of people living every day not hurting a soul Mm -hmm. but thinking they're a terrible person because of what they think or what arouses them which Mm -hmm. they have no control over what arouses them Mm -hmm. it's unnecessary to beat yourself up do you see they just passed a, a, a law i think in great britain that they're banning rape porn like it's not allowed and while I understand the sentiment behind that, I think you can't control what people want as fantasies so much. Like, that really creeps me out, and it's not something I want in mm-hmm. my porn. But, but if, if it's there two, are if, creepy things that I like in my porn, and I don't... If, if it's two people role-playing, I know, how, that's how, the is thing. It, how is it hurting? And, you know, then people would say, well, it's feeding a sick part of themselves. And I would say... It, we all have a shadow self. We yeah. all. I'm reading a book right now that I'm going to run my fucking mouth about for the next four months, which is what I always <laughs> do. Whatever book I'm reading, everybody has to read, but right. it's called um, What It Feels Like to Go to War. And this guy talks about embracing, of, uh, about all of us needing to recognize the darkness inside ourselves, not so that we can deny it, but so mm-hmm. that we can acknowledge that it exists and, and then say to ourselves, how can I keep from feeding this to where it becomes out of control can i tell you i hate myself i think that is such a perfect thought and 
one of the reasons why I like it so much is because I grew up with this specific character as my emblematic force. You know, he's a creature wrapped in darkness, a creature of the night who is a force for good, who's metaphorically a light in the world. And he obviously has this big giant light in the sky, but he is, he looks like a bad guy. And it's this darkness. I, I wrote in the afterword of my book is like, I was in the darkness and then Batman helped me realize that I could wrap it around myself like a cape or a security blanket and that I don't have to be a bright angel. I just have to be a force for good because and no if there's all this darkness in me and I can fuel it towards doing useful things, that's what Bruce Wayne did. Yeah, because I think there are elements of the darkness, you know, there there can be anger, there can be resentment, you know, there can be, um, you know, uh, enjoying a feeling of 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 power mm -hmm. that, in small doses, could help you stop somebody from getting beaten up. Right. That could make you unafraid to stand up in the middle of something terrible going on mm -hmm. and and say this is wrong this is unacceptable but this guy then talks about in when he was in vietnam mm -hmm. how he gave in too deeply to it mm -hmm. and s participated in if not atrocities certainly things that haunt him to this day and part of his healing process was him making peace that that is a part of him but that is not who he is and right. that's the message i want to get to people out there who struggle with a creepy part well, the of, message their, of, of their sexuality. Every good superhero story is the same message. It's you are who you choose to be. You know, you are what you do. The things inside you help are complex. So much more than we think. The funny thing about being a comics creator is you end up pouring yourself into your comics even when you don't intend to. Like, this is my first, or it's my second autobio comic that I've done professionally that's been published you know but even if you read <clears throat> even if you read my superhero parody web comic about a sidekick of a sidekick so he's like one level down <laughs> What's the name of it it's called butterfly uh -huh. so there's like a batman analog called Nightbat and a robin called birdie and then birdie brings home his own sidekick and Nightbat's like you can't have a sidekick you're my sidekick it's like well, if you can have one so can i and that's the start of the strip mm -hmm. and it <laughs> ran for years but even in that, uh, Butterfly's a kid who's got an estranged father and his mother's raising him in the suburbs and he's got this stepfather figure in Nightbat. And there's so much of me and, and my optimism in that story that I didn't realize I was pouring my heart out into. But really, you can't create things outside of your own context. And my context is this weird wrapped up in all this stuff mm. so when i make anything it's about me one of the one of the things that this author uh that wrote this book said because i you know i i used to say what you said that we we are we are not our thoughts we are our actions and uh -huh. i i agree with that but i would even ch change it a little bit to okay. say we are who we decide to move forward as and not what we have done in the past. Yeah. That that can't define us. Because for this guy to heal from the things that he had done in Vietnam, he couldn't 
he couldn't heal himself until he had compassion for himself by understanding the darkness that was inside of him and that he didn't understand that it is like a lion in a cage yeah. that you have to keep caged to a certain degree and that you have a responsibility uh, to not hate yourself for having that in you mm-hmm. but take responsibility for that and to use it in a way that is responsible i think it's and, very well articulated and so who he is is the guy that now takes responsibility for self-knowledge of what is inside of him mm-hmm. so that 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 would be my, my I contr- like that my it's control very, it's, freak it's more complex but more accurate and i think it's more self-compassionate because yeah. there are so many people out there who have you know hurt people you know killed somebody in a in a head-on collision because they were drunk that's not a you know that person's action of getting behind the wheel that doesn't mean they're a bad person it meant that they didn't understand the powerlessness over alcohol that they had yeah. that they were a selfish and afraid person who didn't know how to cope with their feelings i think so many bad decisions come from a lack of acknowledgement that there are mistakes you can make that you can't undo there's so many things you can do when you're a kid and you make a small mistake and you can try and fix it and you still feel bad but there's stuff you can do that you can't undo for others. And so trying to move past that is complicated. What would you say if, and I hope this isn't triggering or inappropriate, um, what would you say if that guy that molested you, if you, if you ran into him in a, in a quiet setting where it was just the, 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 the two of you? I'd say I've thought a lot about it. Um, during the time I was working on the story, I didn't know his last name and I didn't know his full first name. We had a nickname for him and I, I haven't used it in the story or talked about it publicly because I don't want people who have the same name to feel all weirded out. But, um, my mom was able to give me that information. And so I looked him up like what, like you do, you look him up on Facebook. And at the time he was incarcerated. He's been in and out of jail. I was able to track his whole criminal life and, um, he was most recently incarcerated for driving drunk the wrong way down a median road with his seven-year-old daughter in the car. And there's so much in that that is difficult for me to handle. And before I found him, I sat there and did like what you were doing a moment ago with the, you know, this is a really horrible thing he did, but it's also a teenager. And it's really hard to judge. A young teenager. I know. and And now he's, you know... And it's like almost 40 or something. So maybe he got therapy or maybe he moved past what he did or has has recognized how the gravity was and became a better person. So I I genuinely, after I learned his name, I gave myself a full day before I Googled him. And I knew, I said, that's what I should do. I don't want to just go down the rabbit hole because I'm very obsessive and I'll, I'll just... Like right now I'm on Gordon Ramsay and I'm watching every single show he does and I'm cooking in the house for the first time. I spent $600 on cooking equipment like I've never (laughs) cooked in my whole life and I'm loving it. Um, I get really down the rabbit hole on things. So and and especially when it's internet crime sleuthing, oh. especially with my personal Joe Chill, we anyway. got we got to swap some uh, documentaries. <laughs> we got I, so, I've got a, a list, uh, probably eighty documentaries long. If you're fascinated by yes. crime in the dark side, but go ahead. Um, so I I gave myself a day before I went down the rabbit hole, and then I did, and I genuinely went into it thinking maybe this guy got himself together. I'm not going to judge who he is now based on what he did to me. And he still seems like a super big dipshit. Just 
He like he looks like a douchebag. So when I say that, you have a picture of what he's wearing right now. You are correct, and he's endangering his child and stuff. And and I have, I, I. It sounds crazy, but I don't wish horrible things for him. I wish he would get his life together. The way I feel about everyone, like I don't wish bad things on people. But if you put me in a room with him, I don't know if I could not hurt him. Even though he's way bigger than me, I'm just way smarter. Well, he'd be drunk. It'd be easy to... <laughs> and I got to say, if he's drunk, driving the wrong way, uh, he's still being a pedophile. That's what I'm there, there's no way uh, somebody is going to be drunk and get a hold of their, uh, you know, their acting out. With uh, his own daughter in the car. And God knows what he's doing to his daughter. I'm See, sure. that's the thing is, and I try not to go down too far yeah because it's not my job i'm not really batman as much as i you know like pretending i am um you're more like alfred the butler <laughs> i am for my son anyway get his food and his clothes you're ready. commissioner gordon let's be honest well people do call me who is me. who is uh, other than batman and robin who are your favorite characters in uh in batman uh batgirl's a big one but dick grayson I know you said not Robin, but he grew up and he became Nightwing. And he actually took over as Batman for a while. And the Robin at the time was Batman's actual son. So his adoptive son is the Batman for his biological son, who he barely knew, who was raised by assassins. And it was awesome because you got a smiley Dick Grayson Batman and a little badass Wolverine Robin. Were you a fan of the TV series Batman? Every one of them. Who was your favorite uh, criminal? Uh, that easily Catwoman, like by miles, and which, all the different versions. Catwoman? Eartha Kitt's my favorite, um, but I like all the all of them. Oh, but gotta... Batgirl, Yvonne Craig, Batgirl, is such a huge influence on me. Not just because she was like everyone's first crush, but also as a designer of costumes. And I run this whole site, and it all started from Batgirl. That Batgirl costume is so strong. It is so gorgeous. The low belt and big pockets and sparkly oh. and the colors. The newest Batgirl in the comics was just redesigned a couple of weeks ago by two of my friends, Cameron Stewart and Babs Tarr, and they brought the purple and yellow back, and it's like a leather jacket now, mm -hmm. and it's awesome. It's so wicked. I, I think this may be the sexiest woman ever in television was Julie Newmar Yeah, as, as Catwoman. I mean, Mine's that Mary was... Tyler Moore on The Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Laura Petri. Uh, the scariest character to me was always Cesar Romero as the Joker. He scared the shit out of me. You know, I think uh, for me, the Riddler seemed scarier. Yeah? Joker always just seemed too goofy on that show for oh, me. Oh, that laugh of his. and that, and Because he wouldn't shave his mustache. I know. And they would, and it, it looks just messed gave up. Him, it just gave it's him creepy. this weird... Yeah. And the and the you know the green hair the orange hair whatever color it was I don't know there's something about the way uh, who played Riddler it's fallen Frank my Gorshin head. yeah so Gorshin plays Riddler and his face would just go so devious when he's so delighted with his criminal plans yeah and and it, he he scared me because he was so smart mm. um, I think I've always feared uh, intelligence more than muscle because when you're bullied a lot in high school it's like yeah, you can beat me up, but I still won. You know what I mean? Because I didn't, either I didn't stoop to your level or I still got that joke on you that is why you're punching me in the face. 
you know. Do you do you think some of that has to do with the fact that you were tricked as a kid into the most painful thing that that ever happened to you? Because it, you know, he he, that's really what for a molestation to be quote unquote successful right. to the predator, it's about fooling the child. You know, I've never thought about that. I, I definitely have to consider that for a while, but that's not a bad thought. Um, I think just uh, in general, the the characteristic of a person that I find the most powerful is how smart they are. That's why Batman's so powerful. It's why his best villain... That's why the Joker's so powerful. Yeah, and your body can lose power, but your mind may be still growing. Right. The... Uh, there's another thing about criminals, too, that I think uh, is so – it's so funny, but working in nerd world like I do, you find people who believe what the criminal says. And as somebody who is affected by crime, especially from someone who is a liar, I find it really upsetting when you hear – like the Joker in The Dark Knight. Did you see The Dark Knight? Oh, it's amazing. I think The Dark Knight is a near-perfect film. It's like a great crime drama that happens to have Batman in it, and he does all the Batman stuff I like. Especially my favorite thing is that he just disappears at will like a ninja, Mm -hmm. which he does in all the comics and cartoons. But in a movie, it seems silly that he can just appear in a room full of strangers. But whatever, he's Batman. But in that movie, Joker has this really great monologue where he's explaining how he doesn't have plans. And of course he has plans. He's got barrels of gasoline and people being kidnapped and people on the take and all these plans... That's all he does is have plans. But he's like, do I look like a guy with a plan? And there are people who will sit in an audience like that and go like, yeah, the Joker doesn't even need plans. It's like, no, no, no. He, he's got plans. His genius is that he makes you think he doesn't have plans. Exactly. It's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. You know, that kind of thing. So uh, similarly, Dr. Doom always talks about being very noble. Um, Captain Hook has the thing about good form. Lex Luthor says he'd save the world if only Superman would get out of his way. All of that's bullshit, though. Those guys are criminal liars who are very petty and self-centered. And if they believed anything they said, they'd be superheroes. Mm -hmm. But every superhero and every supervillain has the same kind of origin story where you get an ability or you find out you have an ability or you find out something about yourself that allows you to help others or help yourself. And if you hurt others to help yourself, you're a supervillain. And if you help others, even if it hurts you, you're a superhero. And it, the origins are identical. Doc Ock could be a superhero. There's no reason that he's not, except that he was already a bad dude who makes bad choices. I love comic book world because of all of this stuff. It allows you to play out these psychological and um, societal ideas in a very safe kind of environment. And because it's been running for so long, you know, we're it's 75 years of Batman. We're in the 76th year of Superman. It's it's exciting that we're, you know, a quarter century away from another, like a hundred years of these guys who have meant so much to all of us. But there have been thousands and thousands of poor artists and writers pouring their hearts into these guys to make them who they are. And the bad ideas fall away and the good ideas stick and they get better every decade. And so every... 
you know, when you ask me about a Batman show, like the 60s show, there's a lot of nerds these days who like more the Dark Knight style Batman. And they're like, oh, I don't like that Adam West show. And it's like, no, no, that show's great. It's just a step. Mm -hmm. And it's still, it'll always be great. And the 89 Batman movie, which was a huge life-changing event for me, because that's why I got into comics, uh, that's a really cool movie that's also just a step. Mm-hmm. we're past both of those now in terms of who Batman is in the comics, the collective theory of all of us working on him. And because it's so many people, it kind of feels like it's inviting you to dream it up too. Mm-hmm. So like every fan has their idea of Batman and it's all contributing. We were, we were talking, but just before we, we wrap up, there was one thing I, j- I just wanted to mention because it it's, I saw this recently. My wife passed this article along to me, and it was about a book that was written by this woman. I believe her name is Melissa Moore, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping to have her as a guest. We've corresponded. I'm hoping to have her as a guest on the podcast, and she wrote a book about being the daughter of a serial killer. Uh, he wow. was called the Happy Face Killer, and because that's how he would sign his notes when he would write to the press. He would it's, he would put it with a little happy face, and so that's what he became known as. And there were some news clips, some video, along with this article about her book coming out, and one of them was the interrogation of, of this guy. And I love watching interrogations because it's such a peek into somebody's darkness and, and the way that they try to manipulate. Because people who are predators... At their very core, mm-hmm. I think what they really, really get off on is is manipulating. Right. And this guy was talking about something where he was saying how he rarely ever drink. He was he was he was saying, "Oh, you know, I, I you know rarely drink, and I and I right. and I rarely smoke." And you could see him puffing himself up, mm-hmm. you know, as like. There's something fascinating to me the way like you were talking about how Joker says he doesn't have plans. Mm-hmm. How the the fight in people so often is to try to pretend that there's something they're not. Yeah. When in reality the way to safety and compatibility with society is to say no, here is the thing that is inside me. Yeah. Can you please help me with this? Mm-hmm. You mentioned that your mother figured out that something had had happened yeah. to you. Um, how did how did she know and how did she accept the truth coming out? And, and how did she was she in terms of comforting you or talking to you about what had happened? Well, it's kind of creepy uh as i left out my sister being abused in the comic because i and i told her i was going to she gave me permission to put her in but honestly the guilt you feel just as a sexual abuse victim is nothing compared to the guilt you feel when you're involved in your own sibling being abused like when you were there and didn't know enough to know to stop it Okay, so I'd said that uh, our attacker threatened us with a gun to kill our families. My sister was young enough that that didn't register with her in a way that mattered. And so 
my mom was giving her a bath later that night and found her underwear stuffed down her pants leg. And she couldn't think of a reason why that would be the case, right? Because that doesn't make any sense. So she asked Jen about it, and she told her and what had happened in whatever language she could use, understanding at that level. And so my mom came to me, and she's really angry, and not at me for what happened, but at me for not telling her. How could you not tell me? And so I break down crying, and I say, but now he's going to kill you because I was old enough to understand that what he was saying. I wasn't old enough to know that he couldn't really make good on that threat if I did get him arrested, but I was old enough to be terrified of the consequences of someone being shot with a gun. So uh, then immediately my mom's anger breaks, and she's holding me and crying, and she's, uh, I explained to her what he had said, and she's like, well, that's not going to happen. And um, normally... When the police arrest a minor, they try to do it quietly. But because of the nature of this crime and the number of victims that they discovered he had, they called my mom to let her and uh, the guy who would become my stepdad come and watch him get arrested in handcuffs in front of everybody. And she saw it through, like, taking us to the police station and stuff. It was hard for her because it meant acknowledging what has happened and I really um, you know she sometimes interacts with the people on my fan page on Facebook which has jumped so dramatically since doing this story because it, I've kind of brought out of the woodworks a lot of people who needed this story and mm -hmm. so like whenever there's news or studies or something we have a place where we can talk about it and it's my Facebook page and it feels good but sometimes my mom interacts with the fans and, and it I feel like she's like the bat mom mm -hmm. and I, I really like it, but she really was because she made sure the criminal that changed our lives forever at least went to jail for it. And, um, I'm really proud of her. I yep. think that also meant like when this came up, like I said, it was uh, members of this church we were at. We later moved to a, a different church that was just really wonderful for everybody in my family. My mom still goes there. But um, they said, like, how can you accuse this family? Like, the father's a deacon. The mother runs this daycare, which is where the teenager was getting his victims. And she was really shunned by all these people, just like she'd been in high school. And the strength of my mom, I, I honestly, I said this in the afterword of the thing, but the real heroes in my life were my parents. And, and I honestly think my mom in particular... I should have done a story about her, and I did this one about a silly guy who dresses up as a bat. Has anybody yeah. done a superhero who's a mom? Yeah, there have been a few. There have been a few. Actually, a really old example was the original Red Tornado. She dressed up in long johns and a mask that was a... Her helmet was a pan, mm -hmm. and she pretended to be a guy to go fight the gangs on her streets. This is back in the 40s. When I confronted what had happened to me as a kid stuff that my mom had done to me that was creepy the moms that listened to this podcast and the moms that are friends of mine rallied around me in yeah. a way that brought tears to my eyes they circled the wagons they sent me supportive emails right. and it it was in such stark contrast 
to the mom experiences I'd had as a kid, it helped clarify in my mind that what happened to me was abusive, that it was. Yeah. And, and it was as close as I will ever get to having that feeling of a mom protecting me. And it was, it was nirvana. It was like, it, it helped me begin to heal. And so I want to say to, to parents that are out there, it's so important for you to have an open line of com- communication with your child because I see so many times people will share with me that they didn't go to their parents with mm-hmm. this abuse because they didn't want to upset them mm-hmm. because they had a, a, a parent who was would fly off the handle and they would make everything all about them. Yeah. And the kids need a safe environment for them to bring their crises to. Yeah. And there's nothing that you can't get through I don't believe with your kid if if you are there to really support them and, and, and nurture them and do your best to protect them. You will never be able to protect them from, from everything, but your child knowing that you want to protect and nurture them um, makes all the difference in the, in the world. It and, really does. You know, I'm one of the things about doing this story meant that um, people in my life saw it. You know, people I went to school with, friends, and um, people that I've had as friends as an adult. And the responses have been things like, I wish I'd have known so that I could have helped. And, you know, one of my best friends from high school wrote me that, and I wrote back to tell her, like, you totally did. You let me be me in a non-bullying environment where, like, my best friend was a girl and would paint my toenails and... We'd, you know, sing Sugar Ray all the way to go see the new rom-coms. And her boyfriends would be jealous of us hanging out, but we were platonic, really good friends, and she was a huge help to me. I think every dude should have a girl best friend so that they stop being sexist dicks. Then also, one of my best friends from when I lived out here on the West Coast, uh, who I haven't seen in years, I'm seeing at Comic-Con, wrote me to tell me about something they'd never told me about being uh, physically abused as a kid and uh, by their mom and how now that uh, she's not in his life anymore, but his girlfriend's mom has uh, kind of adopted him and he has that motherly feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's got a special commission of Wonder Woman as a mom to him and her <laughs> that he wants me to do for him this weekend. And uh, I, I'm not even charging him. I was like, brother, that is fantastic. That's, that's exactly what I want to do with superheroes. That's beautiful. That's what my mother-in-law was to me. Yeah. She was the, the, the mom that I never had. And it was, I sobbed so hard when she died. Um, it, and the funny thing was, my mom was there at the funeral and my mom picked a fight with me. Because I, I think she could. Because it she, wasn't. A she knew I was never going to cry that hard for uh, oh. for her. But uh, I, I've heard so many stories of parents who are like that, and I'm really, really fortunate that the bad parent in my life went away, and I had two really good ones. And and the only reason I'm able to, to tell my story with any kind of confidence, uh, even though it was challenging. Uh, is because I had them in my corner. Yeah. Dean, uh, people can find you at deantrip.com, and uh, Trip is T-R-I-P-P-E. And uh, thank you so much for, for coming in. Uh, well, thanks so much, man. I've really been a fan of the show, so I'm excited. I appreciate it. I hope people enjoy it.
Many, many thanks to Dean. And uh, if you get a chance, check his stuff out. I'll throw some links up on our website to uh, something terrible and um, and another project that uh, that he has. Uh, before we get into some surveys, want to remind you guys, there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. You can support us financially by going to the uh, website, mentalpod.com, and uh, making a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It uh, it means a lot to the podcast. It means a lot to me, and uh, sending lots of love to those of you who have signed up to become uh, monthly donors or who have donated. You can also uh, support us financially by shopping uh, at Amazon and entering through our search portal or my butthole. Either one. Either one is tight and digital. So whichever one you... Uh, and Amazon's going to give you a couple of nickels. Um, <laughs> there's got to be another joke in there about shooting nickels out of my ass. But anyway, um, you can... Enter Amazon through our search portal, and uh, that way if you buy something, Amazon will give us uh, a couple of nickels and it won't cost you anything. And you can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice about us and giving us a good rating that boosts our ranking, and that brings more people to the podcast, which uh, definitely helps. And you can also support us by spreading the word through social media, through Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, um, Whatever, whatever it is that you kids do. To uh, kick things off, I am going to play a clip uh, that was recorded about two years ago. I did a group recording of listeners in uh, Toronto when I was up there to record Scott Thompson. And um, I think there was about 18 of us in the room and Susan Hagen, um, therapist Susan Hagen, who was a former guest and an all-around great person, she came up from uh, Massachusetts with her uh, her boyfriend, Billy, and uh, Susan helped um, chime in and answer questions that people had, and uh, just generally all-around supportive. So this clip I'm playing is with a listener, Kalina, and... Um, and uh, the other voice you'll hear is either me or uh, or Susan. Okay, I'm Kalina, and there was a, there were a few surveys here that kind of s- s- spoke to me, and one of the ones that I felt I definitely related to it says, "I'm afraid to write down what I really feel because no one wants to hear it. They will be depressed and put off by all my negativity. I don't want to drive them away." And I'm. Generally, I'm a very happy person, or I've been diagnosed as bipolar, so I have very manic episodes. And then, so I'm like, I'm the life of the party, and everybody loves me, and I'm so exciting, blah, blah, blah. But then nobody wants to hear it when I'm sad. And never, nobody, and I feel this way so often that I can't ever say anything sad because I need to continue to be that person for everybody around me. And so it's definitely something I. And I, I'm terrified of driving people away because people like me when I'm up. Nobody likes me when I'm down. So it's just a really, I definitely related to that. So as you know, or if, I don't know if everybody heard the episode that we did together. Um, I do model, I do, the, my, the model that I work with is inner child. And so when I hear, when I hear you say, nobody wants to hear me be negative, I hear inner child 
because the truth is is that some of us like hearing negative and some of us like hearing positive but i think what happens is when you've had a parent who doesn't like hearing negative or if you have some modeling of somebody who's never negative or if there's something about being negative that makes you feel like you're not going to get what you need so that there's this persona that you've that you kind of forced yourself to create because that's how you got your needs met when you were a kid oftentimes there is a belief system that says i can never be negative and it's usually not because other people don't want to hear me be negative it's usually that i won't get what i need if i'm negative so you so because of that um statement of i can nobody wants to hear that maybe people aren't used to you being negative so like wow people aren't used to it right because i'm negative by myself you know i don't i don't ever talk to people like because when I, and then when i do they don't respond the way i want them to and then i just get mad and so then, mm-hmm. I, then i just get angry at them because i'm like never mind just forget it but you know that it isn't uh when we're always up or positive that really isn't um an organic i mean usually most people are both up both down i mean you can you know the balance is i feel bad sometimes and sometimes i feel really great and that's kind of a place where you want that's a goal right to yeah. kind of have a balance but to feel that pressure of always being in a positive place that kind of makes you want to isolate doesn't it i don't want to be because i have to really like put a show on here it's exhausting right so that's an exhausting life yeah so actually going into that where that inner child takes you and says if i'm negative i don't get what i need or i don't get the the praise or i don't get the acceptance that's where that's something to do with your formative years and i can see the emotion coming up when you said that that's definitely unfinished business i think she needs to try harder to smile <laughs> I think you're just being a baby. No, I could see, I could see that emotion come up. You almost sound like you were, you're about to cry when you yeah. were saying that. That must, that must feel really, um, um, I don't know if dehumanizing is the right word, but like you're not a full person when, when you're, when you're down. As if that's like you're not, like you don't have value. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I just feel like. I have to be this other person. Yeah. How many how many people by a show of hands feel that way when they're when they're down? Yeah, the majority of people here feel that same way. Yeah. Oh, I should have raised my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a burden, like a ball and chain when I'm that way, like um like I'm just holding everything back, like I'm just a boulder in the road of my road and other people's roads. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think it, what Susan said is quite actually did strike a nerve because when I was a child, my mother died really young and also, yeah. And I was always like, Kalina, go do a poem for us. Kalina, why don't you go and sing a song, perform, you know? And I, and I was always, Kalina, you're so beautiful and you're so pretty and you're so, I don't know, but it was almost negative. <laughs> like, I don't know. I always felt like I had to be on and performing and but and my family never talked about anything ever at any point in time. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like they were validating what was external in you and not not what was what was internal. Yeah. Like no 
interest in what your internal life lo- did anybody say how you feeling about what happened to mom no and then I've, I've been in therapy and I've discussed this with my therapist ad nauseum but it is this uh, it was also this whenever I spoke about anything my, they would be like you're just making yourself feel that way oh it's my you god who's making yourself feel that That's way so you terrible know? it's just you and then so I was I felt so invalidated all the time because I and then that's and that's the thing and then when I'm down I'm like it's just me it's just me who's making me feel this way like why why don't I can't I just snap out of it or whatever mm. so yeah this one's definitely relatable well thank you thank you for sharing that one I want to make sure everybody gets a chance yeah, I don't so um uh, I like how you turned that into hogging the spotlight, though. That was nice. That was masterful. How you were able to put yourself down from some, from no, nothing that meant to be negative. Oh, that interesting. Was, that was really that was really good. Oh, the comfort of knowing other people are just like we are. Even though you're bummed that they have to experience it, there's something so soothing about knowing you're not alone. Um, this is a survey. This is the Shame and Secrets uh, survey, and this was filled out by a woman who just calls herself Question Mark. She's 18, she's gay, um, English is not her uh, primary language, and um, she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, never been sexually abused. Uh, she had a mom who was emotionally abusive and um, had a, uh, what, she walked on eggshells a lot being around her mom. Um, Deepest, darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about killing myself just to hurt my parents, even though that wouldn't work because if I would kill myself, they would probably just get angry about how weak I was. I think a lot about hurting those who are close to me. I also fantasize that my aunt, who was an important caregiver to me, had raped me as a child. I have no idea why I fantasize about something so terrible and enjoy it in a weird way. It disgusts me. Uh, darkest secrets uh she writes only quote normal stuff for example nobody knows i'm attracted to older women uh sexual fantasy is most powerful to you uh i just have one two hands caressing my body uh who is in this fantasy a skinny longer version of a childish body the hands slowly wandering to my vagina doing everything you can do with your fingers down there while the hands are doing their thing i'm just lying there enjoying it just describing it turns me on. I would love to have the body I have in that fantasy. A long time I thought I was attracted to children, but now I realize that I would just love to have a children's body. Um, I want my body to look like the body of a kid. I don't hate my adult body, but I feel like in, in order to be sexually satisfied, I need a children's body. It got, it feels goddamn fucking wrong to think that. Um, what if... I? And hopefully you've listened. If if you are re- listening to me reading your survey, you've paid attention to what Dean and I have had to say um, previous to this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to let my emotional part speak to the outside world. I would like to let him scream and cry. But this will never happen because the other parts of my personality wouldn't allow it. I would like to tell my friends that I'm... Uh, that I am too as cold and as rude as I act, that I, I think she's saying that she's in co- as cold as and as rude as she acts on the outside, uh, that the walls pushing them back are also holding me back for being really me. What, if anything, you wish for? I wish for a life that's not just in my head. I wish for love and for being able to love. Have you shared these things with others? No, I haven't, because if... Uh, 
to do so, I would need to admit to struggle, and that's just unacceptable. If I would, people would know how fucked up I really am, and they wouldn't take me seriously anymore. I disagree. I think people would take you more seriously um, if they knew that you, if you showed that human side, at least to people who are appropriate and safe. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? Ashamed. I'm not a native speaker, and all I can think about right now are the mistakes I made and that nobody will be able to understand what I wrote. Uh, by the way, uh, you write as well as anybody who is a native speaker of English, so you have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, the way you wrote what you wrote or what you wrote, and uh, sending you some love. This is this is an awfulsome moment, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Start Monday. And she writes, I was 21, and myself and my now husband went on holiday with my family to Greece. One day we hired cars, and off we went on a family tour of the island, stopping at one tourist spot high on the cliffs, where uh, when standing on a viewing platform, you can see, you can look at Shipwreck Beach. This is a breathtakingly beautiful place and is considered one of the top 10 beaches in the world. Myself, my husband, and my cousin finish taking photos of the view and are waiting for the rest of the group. When I turn around to speak to my granddad, only to be confronted, because of the way he was sitting, by his elderly testicles, which had made a valiant attempt to break free from his shorts. There he was, sitting with his sport shorts on, looking every bit the tourist, taking in the view and enjoying a moment of bliss. I immediately started laughing, turning to the others and pointing out the view behind us and trying to make one of the boys tell him to close his legs. However, we couldn't stop laughing, barely able to breathe, with tears running down our faces. In his own mystical time, he stood up, amused at our laughter, and headed back to his car. I'm sure as a former coal miner, he never thought he would see the day where we would be sitting in a foreign country in such a beautiful place with his family around him. I certainly never thought I would see the sights I saw that day, too. Such horror in such a beautiful setting. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The testicle just looks like it needs to be ironed. Uh, this is, uh, again, shame and secret survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself master of self-sabotage. She is straight. She's in her thirties. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been sexually abused? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, a friend of my mother's, they were both alcoholics, uh, who claimed to be an artist and photographer, asked to take my picture. My mom dropped me off, and he took me into the mountains and took pictures of me naked, draped in a sheet, partially exposed in the water, etc. I was 13. He was 54. I don't think he touched me, but I was terrified during the process and afterward, very ashamed that I allowed it to happen. Uh, that is absolutely sexual abuse. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Uh, besides the usual dysfunction found in a family of divorced alcoholics, my mother was also mentally ill and often suicidal. She always made it very clear that I was the only reason for her to live. It is so, it is so abusive to say that to your kid. That kind of pressure. 
Oh my God. She uh, attempted suicide more than once, and as a child, I assumed that I must be the reason for that as well. I clearly wasn't doing or being enough to keep her alive. <laughs> no pressure! Exclamation point. Yeah, that is. That is. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Actually, I can because my mom would always break down and threaten, you know, to leave everybody because she was so miserable and I always felt it was on my shoulders to cheer her up and to ask her to stay and not leave us. Um, any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, definitely. I always knew I was loved and my mom always sought help. She saw a therapist, took meds, hospitalized herself when necessary. I always knew she was trying. Looking back, her consistent efforts, which have ultimately resulted in her recovery, have helped me to forgive her. That's so beautiful. And I think that's all you can ask for as a, as a kid is for that parent to try, for them to, to try. And honestly, that's the reason why I cut contact with my mom is because she just doesn't want to look, you know, the, 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 the fact that I experienced, you know, the creepy sexual things that, that she did as a kid, that's not why I cut contact with her. The real reason I cut contact with her was that day that I told her that I don't feel safe around her. And she just looked right past me as if I had said, you know, it's sunny outside. That's that's why I don't have contact with her is because I don't want I don't want to have a relationship with somebody that doesn't care that I feel unsafe around them. Um, darkest thoughts. I've always been very strict with where I allow my mind to go. I'm too busy striving for perfection to have deep, dark thoughts. Maybe I'm afraid that if I allow myself one, they may never stop darkest secrets i've lied and stolen to feed my addictions um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being dominated not in an unkind way the idea of giving up control is powerful uh, anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to to my kids i love you and i'm sorry i wasn't given more tools for the job but i'm trying i think that's all all we can ask of each other is to just be trying um what, if anything, do you wish for to be free of all addictions? Boy, a friend of mine said something so profound tonight in a support group. He said, the opposite of addiction isn't abstinence, it's connection. And I was like, wow, that is so true. That is so true. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Catherine. And she writes, after my father passed away, the hospital lost his body. Let that sink in. He had had a, you, th you think it sucks losing your luggage. Where's dad? We've been standing here at the, at the conveyor belt for three days. Where is he? Maybe he's in that door that you roll up where the skis are. Uh, he had had a heart attack at home, but was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. Having selected to be an organ donor, they sent his body to be harvested, but I guess someone accidentally checked off full body donation instead of specific parts. His body was halfway to Philadelphia before the funeral home realized what had happened and made the very awkward phone call to my already distraught mother. My brother's reaction was nothing short of homicidal, but I just couldn't stop laughing. So there the three of us were, in the parking lot of a pizzeria, days before Thanksgiving, one crying hysterically, one yelling about killing people, and me laughing until I couldn't breathe. That is fantastic. Thank you for that. 
This is filled out. This is Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Omni. He is uh, bisexual in his 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. He doesn't specify. He's been emotionally abused, doesn't specify. Um, did have positive experiences with his abuser, but didn't specify. Um, Darkest thoughts, I'm omnisexual. I want to have sex with pretty much everybody. I don't consider myself an addict because I don't actively seek it, but with the exception of a few close relatives, I would have sex with anyone. Um, Sexual fantasy, most, most powerful to you. The closer I am with someone, the more I want sex with them. My most frequent fantasies involve my best friend, his wife, and her two younger sisters. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to uh, that I really, really want to give, that I really, really want to give my best friend oral sex? I'm married and love my wife and I'm faithful to her, but I really want my best friend to fuck me in the mouth. I don't think that that sounds demonstrative enough to to want him to fuck you in your mouth. I think I think it needs to be something more emphatic. I think you I think it should be you want you want him to file your teeth. You you want him to lay siege to your tonsils. You want him to rug burn your taste buds. Speed bag your uvula. I could go on. I could go on. Thank you for sharing that, Omni. This is a very touching email that I got from a um, woman. Uh, I'll just read it. It says, my name is uh, Dr. Mrs. Amina Dabiari. And uh, very nice to meet you, Dr. Mrs. Uh, I'm a medical doctor working with working with NATO currently in Syria. I got your esteemed contact during my comprehensive research for a reliable and trustworthy individual in your country. Um, I've always wondered what the DMV does with my information. Uh, I will need your help in the situation I find myself. I am really afraid and I don't know whom to confide in. Um, Well, I'm so glad that you contacted me. I have some money I made in the president of Syrian compound Bashar al-Assad's during our search and rescue team NATO. I'm not sure what all of that means, but um, I've got to assume because my name was on a list that um, there's something I can do to help. She writes, I've kept it as secret for a little while and I need someone I can trust to work and transfer this money out of Syria as a medical document. Please, I will need your help for this for I can forfeit 25% of this money to make sure it is safely used for me until I will be living the army next year. I don't even want to know how hard it must be living the army. Joining the army is hard. Living the army. Wow. I will need to work with you in getting this money out of Syria. Uh, please get back to me and I will make the arrangement on how to get this done because I have no one to confide in. I joined the army as an orphan and I don't have someone to confide in as I believe you will be helpful to me. Well, I'm glad that you could tell by my um, driver's license number that I'm a trustworthy person and I'm glad I smiled on my DMV picture because obviously it's it's about to pay me financial dividends but I am concerned for your safety because uh, there's a lot going on uh, over there in the Middle East and 
All I can say, Dr. Mrs., is uh, be safe. Just please be safe. And um, we're all going to say a little prayer for you. We're all going to say a little prayer. I feel like I should have something else to close that with. But I don't. I don't have anything. Just awkward silence. That's it. This is a struggle in a sentence, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Lavender Blonde, and I just want to read her snapshot. She writes, I don't remember my first day of college at all. I had to blank it out, numb out, and get it over with. I was terrified, which led to an uptick in my panic attacks and anxiety. I would call my mother with primitive cell phones, uh, with my primitive cell phone from the bushes because I just wanted to go home. I went to the infirmary countless numbers of times in that first year. It was a tough four years, but I graduated from a top-notch school. My parents picked me up nearly every weekend to rest at home. I can't thank them enough for that, but it would have been nice to have learned how to deal with my emotions from them instead so I could have self-regulated and made the most of those college days over 14 years ago. I wanted to read that because I think that, in a nutshell, encapsulates the difference between emotional and um, educational intelligence and how how illiterate emotionally um, so many of us are. I, I was until I was 40 years old and I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. This is a very brief, awfulsome moment filled out by Debbie and she writes, I keep getting junk mail for life insurance addressed to my dead mother. <laughs> I love shit like that. Just love it. This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by Marie. And she is uh, bisexual in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been sexually abused? Some stuff happens, but I don't know if it counts. Many times when I was younger, I'd be passed out drunk and guys did stuff to me, but I'm not sure exactly what happened. It doesn't matter what happened. What what matters is is that you didn't consent and your body was touched without your consent. It doesn't matter if a guy was rubbing your boobs outside of your clothing, that sexual abuse, um, if he's doing that when you don't want it to happen or you haven't consented. Um, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I was in an abusive relationship for 10 years. I don't want to be with him, but I don't want him to be with anyone else. I know life isn't fair, but I feel like stomping my foot childishly and screaming, it's not fair. Why did he get off scot-free? Why did he keep all of our items and kick me out of the apartment and I was left alone? Why did he get to keep all of our mutual friends, move on and start dating new girls while I'm still hurting so deeply inside? I don't trust anyone. I still, ha I still can't breathe from when he broke my nose. I have nightmares about him every night, and people are sick of me being upset about it. He killed my baby and my soul. Will I ever move on? I feel a deep rage and urge for revenge, like I want to expose him to the world. I don't want him to be happy. I want him to suffer. But then I remember the beginning of our relationship when everything was okay, and I long for that. He remains in my mind as the person he was 10 years ago, 
but when I look at pictures or listen to recordings of his abuse, I get so angry. I'm really confused and don't know how to move on. Also, I was abused emotionally growing up. I think that I think that is the most telling sentence right there is that you were abused emotionally growing up. So oftentimes, the person we're angry at, it has, even though I'm sure there's genuine reasons to be angry at him, the intensity of it, I heard somebody say one time, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And I think that probably applies to what you're feeling. And I had a friend who was in exactly the same situation. She didn't want to get back with this guy, but it's all she could talk about, especially when she drank. And I had to cut contact with her because it was just, it was just too, it was just too much. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? I miss the quote comfort of knowing that even though he treated me like shit, there was ultimately someone to go home to who would possibly take care of me. Now I'm all alone and I'm scared. Darkest thoughts. I don't have much room in my mind for deep dark thoughts anymore because I'm obsessed with my ex and getting revenge on him for what he's done to me. When I was younger, I still had hope. At 33, I don't have any more hope. I don't think I'll ever get married or have kids. I can't survive normal, everyday life. I'm always putting on an act. I'll never get better. I have no friends. Everyone is sick of me. There's no hope anymore. At 33, I wonder, where did my life go? I'm not suicidal, but I just want to cease to exist or lie in bed all day with my dogs under the covers darkest secrets. I drink all day, every single day. When I was in college, my best friend's roommate was a total bitch. When I was really fucked up, I peed on her bed. WTF, who does that? I think the most important thing in that last bit I wrote, uh, read is that you drink all day, every single day. You are not going to heal until you stop drinking. No, no two ways about it. There's just no two ways about it. And that my the the friend that I was telling you about, um, she got sober and she has a chance to begin to heal now and she's starting to feel like a different person and I'm bit by bit letting her into my life just a little little bit, um, but it it's gonna it's gonna take uh, you getting sober and changing for people to trust you again because if you were anything like my friend was it was in fucking tolerable being around her because she was so full of self-pity and the untreated alcoholic is disgustingly wallowing in self-pity and nothing's going to change until something changes until you get until you get help so sending you some love i know it's uh, probably not what you wanted to hear but it's the truth at least my take on it this is a survey, um, shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Water Bears. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been sexually abused? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. The third date in, a man I'd been seeing invited me back to his place to watch a movie. Things started getting physical, and I told him that I did not want to have sex yet. He said he understood and continued to pressure me through the night until he pinned me down, frustrated, and said, I could fuck you right now if you wanted it or not. But then he backed off. He got frisky again later in the night, and I let him have sex with me. I have no idea if this counts as sexual abuse, and it really bothers me that I can't figure it out. I think that's sexual abuse. He threatened you. That was, he had you pinned down, and he made a sexual threat against you. That's abusive. 
if I had a gavel right now, I would just slam the gavel down. And um, yeah, I'm sorry that you had to experience that. Uh, ever been, uh, never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. My stepfather made my, fa- my stepmother made my father choose between her and her family or me. He chose her 15 years ago and doesn't appear to feel any guilt over it. Uh, darkest thoughts. I'm 25 years old and petite with small breasts. I've been told by many people that I look 15 years old. I sometimes wonder if the men who choose to sleep with me do so to fulfill their pedophilia tendencies and use me as an outlet to legally satisfy their fantasies. Darkest secrets. When I was much younger, I scrubbed my asshole with my stepmom's toothbrush. She never found out. This petty act of revenge never made me feel better, and even even typing it out now makes me feel nauseated. Um, I love that you use the word scrubbed. <laughs> you couldn't have picked a more descriptive word. Scrubbed your asshole. Uh, you need to forgive yourself. And, uh, you know... If you do ever decide to tell your stepmother, I think the phrase you kick it off with is, listen, about your gingivitis, and then you let her have it. You let her have it. And whatever the motion was that you made when you were scrubbing, you recreate that for her. With your back turned to her and your ass jutted out and then make some kind of creepy face. I think that's how you let her know. Because she sounds like, honestly, she sounds like a piece of work. That was the nicest word. I was, I was going to drop the C word, but um, I refuse to say the word cunt. I think cunt is a terrible word, and nobody should ever say cunt. Cunt, cunt, cunt. Uh, this is Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled out by Gladys. And she is pansexual in her 20s about her anxiety. She writes, incredible discomfort with the unknown. Dealing with that uh, by fabricating every possible scenario created by my own insane what if ifs until my stomach hurts. About her anorexia, uh, staying in on a Friday because no one should see me looking the way I do. About her sex addiction. If he or she doesn't desire me, I must be as ugly as I feel. I'll fuck someone else to prove that they're wrong. Thank you for that, Gladys. This is a shame and secret survey. And this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Midnight Marauder. He is straight in his 20s. Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Never been sexually abused, been emotionally abused. Uh, My dad has been zoned out for most of my life. He was a lot more talkative around his friends and co-workers than my mom and I. I think if I played for the Lakers or the Cowboys, he'd find me a bit more interesting. My mom took out a lot of her aggression on me. I was never hit, but I always felt like I was walking on eggshells. She just always ran out of patience no matter what it was that I was doing. Any positive experiences with your abusers? We had a ton of great experiences together. I loved going on vacations and riding in the back seat on long trips. It was just so amazing to me how I could fall asleep and wake up in another place that I didn't recognize. Road trips were really fun. Darkest Secrets. 
I've tried to kill myself twice, and the only person that knows is my best friend. I still don't feel comfortable saying that they are suicide attempts, so maybe they were just cries for help. Um, I'm a virgin, but in that stereotypical male fashion, I lie about sex. Big fucking surprise. The only times I've had sex have been, quote, had sex, have been when I was away at college. What a fucking loser. Uh, I guess he's saying that that's... um, the stuff that he makes up. Uh, I'm addicted to porn, specifically cam models. I think I'm just addicted to the con- the connection, even though it isn't physical. Talking to someone who at least acts like they care about you is nice. It has cost me too much money, and I'm trying to stop, but I feel so ashamed and silly. I tried to talk about it with my last counselor, but she was really dismissive about it, and it made me feel even worse. I'm going to try and bring it up with my new counselor soon. And, you know, my suggestion would be finding a counselor who specializes in sex addiction because if you can't stop, um, I mean, you said you're addicted to porn and cam models. So, um, dude, there, there is such a better connection out there than, even though that may be exciting what you're doing, um, it's, it, it's, I don't know, I'm struggling to find the phrase. It it can train your your brain in a bad way to get used to that unreasonable amount of control and immediate gratification uh, because true intimacy is really based on compromise and a lot of things other than the simple commerce of a woman giving you her body and you giving her money. I hope that didn't come across as too preachy. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being the dominant one in a dom-sub relationship, um, I feel really turned on writing that. Uh, Knowing that someone wants me enough to give up some of their power makes me feel validated. I'm sure that isn't the healthiest way to feel about yourself, but I suppose I'll just add it to the list of things I need to work on. I actually think that's very healthy to be in touch with that part of yourself. I think a lot of people, people that want to give up uh, power, I, I think it's a healthy turn on that you want to feel that level of trust that somebody can take control but not hurt you and to be the person who's given the control those both things i think oh god paul shut up just shut up this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by nikki and about her depression she writes uh i'm either in a hole or on a mountain never on stable ground that is that is a keeper in a hole or on a mountain. That's that's such a good description. About her anxiety, uh, she writes, social phobia. I want to go through life unnoticed, yet I want to be successful and well-known in my career. It's a constant battle. About her love addiction, I left my spouse because I fell in love with someone else. I can't figure out if this is a bipolar episode or if I really love him. Um, About her cutting, It's the same feeling you get when you want a cigarette. It itches at you until you give in or zone it out. 
snapshot from her life. I remember being six or seven, screaming and crying, saying I wanted to die. When I saw my father put his hands up to his face and begin to sob, I stopped and hugged him and told him I was sorry. I don't remember what happened after that. I don't think he knew how to help, help me, and I think I realized that. And then finally, we and thank you for sharing that, uh, Nikki. And... Um, I can't imagine how overwhelming that must have been for you and your dad to have been in that. For you to feel like you didn't have somebody that could handle you sharing that and for him to feel like he was failing you as your dad because he didn't know how to handle it. Uh, And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself shitty mom. Uh, And I don't think she is a shitty mom. Um... I might have read this one already, but um, I might have read it on last week's, but I don't think I did. She writes, uh, my 11-year-old son was washing some dishes. Uh, He was wearing rubber gloves, and the heavy glass baking dish he was holding fell into the sink and smashed into many pieces. He got scared, and his first reaction was, I guess I'll have to pay for it from my own money. My heart broke to hear him say that. I calmly told him that it wasn't his fault and he doesn't have to pay. In fact, I added, our tradition holds that when one breaks glass, it's a sign of good things to come and you shouldn't feel bad. Then my husband, who was near us and was listening, took the hands of some of the kids, remember I'm the one with the five kids, and started dancing in the middle of the kitchen, celebrating the good things to come. We cleaned up and into the garbage went the pieces of broken glass and any remaining tension and fear from my son. That evening at the supper table, the kids were in an especially good mood, and I can only guess that it was a result of the adult's reaction earlier. It's small moments like these that I hope my kids will remember, along with all the shitty stuff. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. I just, I love, I love moments where we, we, where something is about to go into that space where it's bad or it even does go into a space where it's bad and then something gets repaired. And my therapist said to me, you know, a while ago in therapy, he said, the strongest relationships that he sees between couples are the ones that know how to repair after their fights. And that makes sense to me because like if you look at... uh, if you ever look at white oak, which is one of the strongest woods, it has these things in it that are that are called um oh fuck I'm blanking on the name, but when the oak tree sways in the wind, it gets these little injuries and um medullary rays are are what they're called. And they're these beautiful little flecks that you see in the wood and what they are is they're repaired injuries and one of the reasons why oak trees are so strong is because they they blow in the wind, they injure themselves, and then they repair themselves. And I think it's unrealistic for us to expect to not be injured or cause injuries to others, but to focus on the positive, which is how do we heal? How do we clean up that mess? How do we develop a tool to deal with it next time, maybe in a way that's a little uh, cleaner, a little more elegant, a little more loving, a little more compassionate. I think that, that I think that's the most realistic thing that we can aim for. And, uh, and remember, when you shop at Amazon, do it through my butthole. Do not forget that. 
I don't care what, I don't care if I'm wearing a thong or if I'm wearing boxers. You get through my butthole and you go do some some shopping. I'm actually a little bummed out that I missed out on the Christmas rush because, come on, am I wrong or am I wrong? I'm wrong. (laughs) If I'm wrong, I don't want to be right. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in a world where things don't pass through my butthole. I don't. I just simply don't. I My dream is to eventually have the entire universe filtered through my butthole and write, ironically, into a black hole. I don't even, I don't even want to know what that mathematical equation would look like on a blackboard, but I bet it would be circular. I have actually grossed myself out which is refreshing because normally I bore myself and I cut myself off, but I've disgusted myself. And uh, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice. Well, if you've listened this far, A, I apologize. Uh, B, you're not getting your money back, monthly donors. Sorry. And C, you will now have an image in your head should you ever decide to shop at Amazon through our search portal. Remember, there is hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. And you are not alone. You never have been. And you never will be. Thank you for listening. My butthole also thanks you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.